Advantages of Being Slandered by Epps Sargent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Everybody speaks well of him. I am sorry to hear it, for then he must have bowed as low to knaves and fools as to the honest dignity of virtue and of talent. Sheridan. Is it possible? True. Every word of it. I had it direct from Mrs. Marvel. You know, is a very matter-of-fact sort of man, and the last in the world to invent such a story about anybody. Well, I never would have believed that young Langsdale could have fallen into such habits, so inconsiderate, too, at this moment, when his bedridden old uncle is hesitating as to how he shall dispose of his immense estate. Oh, that will probably go to Mr. Allen, the other nephew, who is a perfect model for the young men of the age in his habits, and who calls on old Gregory twice a day dutifully to inquire upon his health. And doesn't the dissipated one have sense enough to do the same? Quite the contrary. Langdale hasn't called on his uncle these six months. He is too fond of his bottle and his cigar to concern himself about the old gentleman. And which one of the nephews is favored by the famous beauty, Mrs. Maberly? the fortunate one, of course, whichsoever he may be. But, as the chances of wealth are now in the favor of Allen, Langdale is not so much encouraged as present as formerly. And so Langdale really has a cottage at Bloomingdale, and... Hush! Don't for the world repeat it as though it was coming from me. Though, at the same time, I must say, I think it proper that such things should be known. Oh, to be sure they should. I have a dozen more calls to make this morning, my dear Mrs. B. Good day. Be sure and return my visit soon. And thus saying, Miss Potter took her leave and made a dozen calls in rapid succession, and everywhere communicated the intelligence she had gathered in regard to Mr. Langdale. These agreeable intimations were but part of a system of abuse, which had been originated by Mr. Harrowby, an old friend of Mr. Langdale's, and a masterly tactician in his management of the minor peculiarities of human nature, Langdale had been complaining that Miss Maberly gave him no encouragement, and that his uncle had assured him that he should only leave him enough in his will to buy him a suit of mourning. Harrowby heard this intelligence with concern, for he was himself indebted to Langdale for the loan of some odd hundreds, and though he well knew he should never be done for the repayment, he was yet desirous of keeping his young friend in a position where he should never feel the temptation of want. Harrowby applied himself to the study of Langdale's case, questioned him minutely as to what the world said of him, what were Miss Maberly's characteristics, and what were the uncle's. He learnt that the young lady was of a romantic turn of mind, 
ambitious but high-spirited and generous, fond of admiration, and remarkably fond of having her own way. According to Langdell's belief, however, the good and beautiful preponderated in her character as well as in her person. As for old Gregory, the uncle, he had been a roué in his youth, but now entirely reformed. He took credit to himself for the change, but the fact was that gout and insipid disease had wrought it. He belonged to some dozen temperance societies and abused his old friend King Alcohol with the habitual zeal of new converts. Harrowby reflected long and intently upon these particulars which Langdell communicated. At last he exclaimed, "'I see it, my young friend. I have struck the root of the mischief. The fact is, you have altogether too good a character. You are too amiable, too correct too unexceptionable in your deportment. You don't afford pegs enough for slander to hang her little exaggerations upon. You must commit some trifling peccadilloes, or you will be ruined. Let me see. Suppose you stand in the colonnade before Pinto's tomorrow with a cigar in your mouth and your cheeks very much flushed. But no, there is not the least occasion that you should do anything of the kind. Slander requires no straw in the manufacture of her bricks. Imagination supplies material solid enough for her. I must backbite you a little, Langdale, to give currency to a few bits of scandal, get you very well abused. Then there will be some hope of retrieving your fortunes. "'Really, Harrowby,' replied Langdale, "'I do not comprehend your tactics. "'Look at my cousin Alan. "'See what an excellent character he enjoys. "'And what will be the consequence? "'He will marry Ellen Maberly "'and become old Gregory's heir. "'Fie upon your faint heart! "'He will never do any such thing. "'He is ruining himself by playing the saint.' Why, Harrowby, he is the president of a temperance society, and surely if anything can prejudice his uncle in his favor, it will be that fact. Oh, a mistake! You show your ignorance of human nature, my dear boy, in saying so. Self-love is at the bottom of all of our actions. I take that as an axiom. Now, is it the way to win old Gregory's favor to make it continually apparent to his understanding that you are vastly better than he was at your age? But the lady, Harrowby, surely she will prefer that her lover should be a man of unobjectionable character. Unobjectionable humbug! How will she ever find out that she loves him unless someone gives her an opportunity of defending him? Ah, let all the world traduce rather than praise me to the woman whose love I would win. Where would your philosophy lead to, asked Langdale. If you are right, then the old proverb is wrong, and honesty is not the best policy. For its own sake, said Harrowby, it is for our own peace of mind and the smile of our conscience. I would not give much for honesty, which is based solely upon trust in its policy. How much more cautious than the author of this old saw is Shakespeare when he says, Corruption wins not more than honesty, from which we may infer that honesty wins not more than corruption, which I believe to be a fact. 
but we are straying from the subject before us. The question is, how are you to regain the favor of your uncle and your mistress? I have revealed to you the means. Give me a carte blanche to slander you, and all shall be well. Really, my dear Harrowby, this is a most original plan for advancing one's fortune, but I rely upon your superior sagacity and knowledge of the world. I leave my character in your hands, and I will reconsign it to a maiden lady of my acquaintance who will deal with it very tenderly. Here the conference between Harrowby and his pupil terminated, and the former drew his silk handkerchief over his hat and went forth to set afoot the project he had originated. The result did not fully appear until several months had elapsed. By that time, Langdale had become one of the most notorious young men about town. Studious in his habit, with a constitutional repugnance to sensual excesses, and passing the greater part of his time amongst his books, he yet innocently acquired the reputation of being a five-bottle man, a gay deceiver, a gambler, and a confirmed rake. Mothers warned their daughters against his insidious arts. Prudent fathers threatened their sons with rustication in the event of their venturing to mingle in his society. Numberless were the stories of his extravagances, his scrapes, his gaming propensities. Harrowby, when he heard of these things, as he often would from mamas and papas, looked grave, shook his head, and remarked that it was a pity that such a fine man should so throw himself away. And all the while poor Langdale, forgetful even of his friend's project in his behalf, was deeply engaged in the preparation of a work on ornithology, a favorite study with him, and rarely went forth except for exercise. At length, the physicians gave the world to understand that old Gregory could not survive more than a week or two. His large fortune rendered it, of course, an interesting subject for public speculation. Who was to be his heir? Alan, of course, said the world, and Alan thought so himself, and took the occasion to ask Mrs. Maberlin point-blank if she objected to him as a son-in-law. The mother expressed herself charmed at the prospect, but Ellen positively said no. The mother stormed and threatened. The daughter retired, weeping to her chamber, and, sitting down to a writing-desk, addressed a long letter to Langdale, who, discouraged by demonstration of aversions on the part of the mother and misinterpreted caprices on the part of the daughter, had retired, sick at heart, from the candidacy for her hand. We cannot quote the whole of Ellen's letter, for it would only be laughed at. She had heard of Langdale's fabled career of dissipation and supposed that he had surrendered himself to it on account of his despair of ever attaining her hand. Dreadful stories were told of him, she said, but she didn't believe half of them, not half. Everybody seemed forsaking him now. Even his old uncle had cut him off without a shilling, so her mother declared. Under these circumstances, she had discovered that she loved him better than anybody else in the world, and 
marry Mr. Allen, she wouldn't. Nothing should force her to that. She expressed a hope, nay, she was sure that Langdell would reform under her influence, and that she could never believe that he was a fiftieth part as bad as people represented him. Such was the tenor of the young lady's letter. Langdell had not finished reading and kissing it when he received a summons to attend the deathbed of his uncle. Sincerely concerned at the intelligence of his kinsman's serious illness, he hastened to fulfill the summons. Gregory was the only remaining brother of his departed mother, and though Langdell had never experienced from him any kindness and expected no advantage from his death, he now keenly felt a twinge of remorse at his long neglect of the childless old gentleman. On his way he encountered Harrowby, who insisted on accompanying him. They entered the sick chamber together. Before they reached the bed, the occupant had breathed his last. Several persons were present in the apartment. A clergyman, Mr. Gruff the attorney, a physician, Allen, and a servant. Langdell uttered an unaffected exclamation of regret upon learning what had happened, but did not pretend to have very vehement emotion. Allen sat with his handkerchief to his eyes, the picture of disconsolate affliction. After ascertaining that due preparations would be made for the Asipkutis, Langdell signified to Harrowby his intention of returning home. "'Stop a moment, young friend,' said Mr. Gruff. "'There may be something that will interest you in this paper.' Allen put down his handkerchief and pricked up his ears. Mr. Gruff drew forth a paper tied with red tape from his pocket, and without further preface read the following passage from the last will and testament of the deceased. "'Whereas my nephew, Hopkins Allen, has manifested a becoming interest in the good cause of temperance, I hereby bequeath the sum of five thousand dollars to the Asylum for Inebriates, on the condition that said Hopkins Allen is made one of the trustees of the said institution, and whereas my nephew, Arthur Langdale, unless some strong inducement is offered to him to reform, is likely to become a candidate for the humane offices of the directors of the said asylum, I hereby bequeath to him the bulk of my property, consisting of real estate, etc., etc., as enumerated in Schedule A, on condition that he will from this time forth abandon the use of ardent spirits, and I leave it solely to his honor as a gentleman to declare whether or no he accedes to this condition. A groan from Mr. Allen, a smothered huzzah from Harrowby, and a cry of surprise from Langdale succeeded the reading of this extraordinary cause. "'What say you now to my tactics?' asked Harrowby, when he and Langdale were in the open street. Without waiting for a reply, he continued, "'I have only one regret. It is that this should have occurred before Ellen Maberly had declared herself in your favor. Her disinterestedness would be questionable should she smile upon you now.' "'Not at all. Read that letter,' replied Langdale." "'Victorious on every side!' exclaimed Harrowby as he skimmed its contents. "'Didn't I tell you so? Wasn't it my abuse of you that brought you all this good fortune?' 
it would seem so and yet how unnatural not at all didn't the athenians tired of hearing aristides called the just and isn't it human nature the same now that it ever was your fool of a cousin got people to surround your uncle who continually wrung in the old man's ears the praises of his nephews of you he heard nothing but bad reports but with you he felt that he had sympathies in common he could say to his own heart i was the same wild dog myself when i was his age he was true to his nature at last self-love triumphed as i calculated it would triumph i shall never speak ill of slanderers after this said langdale they have their uses depend on it rejoined harrowby poor allan he has fallen victim to the irreproachableness of his character but there are maberly's marble steps suppose you go in and ask ellen to fix the marriage day end of advantages of being slandered by epps sargent read by kelly taylor